are listening to Revelation, God Wins, from Coram Deo Church, a gospel-centered missional church community in Omaha, Nebraska. For more information, visit cdomaha.com. This morning we're going to be looking uh, at an extended reading from all of Revelation chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It is granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown 
alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Welcome. Uh, If you're just joining us, we are making our way through the book of Revelation. We're getting close to the end. We're in the last three or four chapters of the book And uh, we have seen a lot so far, and so uh, I want to take a moment to just recap where we've been, what we've seen, uh, what Revelation has taught us thus far, uh, for the benefit of those of you who might be newer, or for those of you who just uh, are started getting lost in the details and maybe losing sight of the big picture, which I think is fairly common. So Revelation is apocalyptic literature. In other words, it's written to help us see. Apocalyptic literature is written to unmask or to unveil or to reveal. The idea is to pull back the curtain and show us the true nature of reality that lies behind what we see and what we experience. And so this is the kind of writing that Revelation is. I said at the very beginning of this series that the best way to understand Revelation is that Revelation is a vision of the future to shape our living in the present. And we unpacked the various nuances of that statement. We said, first of all, that Revelation is a vision. You see, this is John in exile on the island of Patmos, and he is receiving this revelation of God through a series of visions. And so this is a very visual book. It's full of imagery. It's full of metaphors. It's full of symbols. It is in, in many ways like a, a screenplay. You're supposed to read it through the eyes of this. What would this look like if it were made into a movie? That's the sort of literature that it is. So it is a vision, first and foremost. But then we said it is a vision of the future. And we noted that that future, not chronologically, but eschatologically. In other words, this is a vision of the last days. And according to the Bible, we are in the last days and have been ever since the coming of Jesus. So this is not about something that is to happen in the distant future. It is about the world we live in right now. And we talked about the fact that the way the Bible understands history, there is the age that is, and then there is the age that is to come. And in the season in which we live now, those two ages overlap with one another, so that the kingdom of God has broken into time and space and history, and we live right now in a broken, fallen world, but the breaking in of God's kingdom has made it possible that we can live in that world by a different set of values by a different allegiance to a different king, and with a different hope and longing. And so I read you uh, some weeks ago this quote from Greg Beale. He says, churches are to read and reread Revelation in their assembly so that they may continually be reminded of God's real new world, which stands in opposition to the old fallen system in which they presently live. So Revelation is a vision of the future, but that future is now and begins now. And finally, we said that it's a vision of the future to shape your living in the present. In other words, that the goal of Revelation is not information, but formation. It is not a textbook that is to unpack for us how everything's going to go at the end of time. Rather, it is a composition that is intended to form us, to shape us, to dictate how we live. We said that we all, every human being, 
lives according to some vision or some picture of what the good life really is. What it is that we ought to be about and pursuing and living in desire of. And we said that Revelation is designed to paint for us God's picture of what the good life is so that we can now begin to live and be shaped by that. So that we can live in light of what God says is good, what God says is coming, and what the new heavens and new earth are going to be like. And so Revelation is a vision of the future that is meant to shape and form our living in the present. Throughout Revelation, John has used images and metaphors and visions to try to shock us and help us to see. Remember, this is a very visual book. And so thus far in Revelation, John has has tried to help us see Jesus correctly. In chapter 1, he gave us a clear and compelling vision of who Jesus is and what he is like to correct some of our faulty thinking about Jesus. In chapter 12, John helped us to see what evil is really like. That underneath the fabric of the universe, there really is a personal evil. That life is war. That there is a conflict in the cosmos between God and between Satan. In in recent chapters, in chapter 13 through 18, John has sought to help us see the world correctly and see our culture correctly correctly so that we can begin to see beneath or see through the stories that our culture tells us and and see underneath underneath that seemingly innocuous reality the danger of the beast the false prophet the danger of the way satan uses the state and false religion and culture to lull us to sleep and to lull us into complacency And now today, John wants to help us see salvation correctly. To open our eyes to what it means to be saved. Revelation 19, verse 1. After this, remember, what have have we just seen so far? We just saw last week God's judgment, God's wrath being poured out. The destruction of Babylon, the prostitute, the affluent, prosperous world culture that seduces us. God's wrath has been poured out on sin. And so after this, he says, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah. Okay, now that word right there should stop you because it's a very common word in the Old Testament. In fact, it's a Hebrew word that literally means praise be to God. Praise be to Yahweh. This is the only time it appears in the New Testament, Revelation 19, four, four times. So, so this is, in a sense, the summing up of all the themes of worship and praise that are lying there in the Old Testament. Now they're all coming to fruition as God's people proclaim. Glory to God. Praise to God. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. So, so the multitude in heaven is crying out after sin has been dealt with, after God's wrath has been poured out on Babylon, they're saying hallelujah because salvation belongs to our God. So what John wants to do here in chapter 19 is to help us understand and frame out our thinking about salvation and what it is. 
We can just admit, can't we, that in American culture, especially American Christian culture, we have sort of this weird subculturish understanding of what it means to be saved, right? Like we have this whole vernacular of being saved, and I got saved, and have you been saved, right? And, and listen, saved is a biblical word, okay? So it's not that that language is unbiblical or wrong, but it's interesting that it sort of has its own connotations in the Christian subculture, doesn't it? It's sort of shorthand. And what's happened is that it's become shorthand for, I had an emotional experience where I walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, raised my hand, threw a stick in the fire. I had some emotional experience where I responded in some way to truth, and, and that's what it means to be saved. And so I got saved. And what's happened is that our thinking about saved and salvation is almost entirely future, right? So the way that we are taught to think about being saved is ultimately, I'm saved at the end of time and I get to go to heaven to be with Jesus. Now, is that true? Yes. Is that all? No. In fact, that idea of what it is to be saved is a very reductionistic, truncated vision of what the Bible means when it talks about salvation. And so for us who would seek to live biblically, and for us who would seek to proclaim the gospel of salvation into a culture and a subculture with a very small and truncated view of what it means to be saved, Revelation 19 is a crucial text. And so John is going to set us right on our thinking about salvation. He's going to frame out and widen and deepen our thinking biblically about what it means to be saved. And he's going to do it by using two images, by painting two pictures for us. He uses, first of all, the image or the picture of a meal. And then secondly, he uses the image or picture of a war. There are perhaps not two more disparate images that he could think of. I think of a meal, a family gathering, a wedding reception. It's joy and hospitality and community. And you think of war, and it is aggression and battle and bloodshed. And John wants to grab these two images, and he wants to smash them together in your thinking and say, yes, these are salvation. And this is the nature of biblical revelation, is to take things that we would consider to be sort of separate and uh, even opposed to each other, and to say, no, 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 these are together. This is the paradox, the mystery of truth is that these things cohere together in a full and clear picture of what salvation is. And so in doing this, what John is going to do is he's going to challenge our reductions of salvation. He's going to challenge the ways in which we truncate and limit and reduce what salvation is. And so as we talk about this chapter this morning, I'm going to talk about it through the lens of how it corrects our reductionistic understanding of salvation. So let's look at John's first image, the image of a meal or a wedding supper. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. 
and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Okay, now I want you to catch something here. This is a little preview for what we're going to talk about in more detail next week. What I want you to see is the emphasis on good deeds. Sometimes in our desire to protect the idea of salvation by grace alone, we minimize the importance of obedience. But I want you to see here that at the wedding supper, what God says is the bride, the saints, the people of God were granted to clothe themselves with bright linen, which is their righteous deeds. See, being saved by grace and being obedient to God are are one and the same. They go together. They can't be separated. If we are changed and transformed by the gospel, we will be people who act righteously. And the picture in heaven sees both. And even notice the precision of the theology here. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. And so it's clear. She didn't just wake up one day and decide to clothe herself with, with bright linen, with clean linen. There's grace involved. There's mercy involved. There's God's calling and granting involved. But the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Verse 9, the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So this first image that John gives us of salvation is a marriage supper. In fact, the marriage supper of the Lamb of God. Now, in Hebrew culture, here's how marriage worked. It was very different from how things work in America. In America, you get engaged, which basically means jack squat, right? So you bought a ring, who cares? You can always return it or sell it on Craigslist, okay? Nothing permanent until the day you walk down the aisle, say a vow, consummate your wedding, and are often married. Okay, that's how engagement and marriage works in American culture. In Hebrew culture, it was flipped. So the engagement was called betrothal. And what that meant was this. You came together and said solemn vows to one another. And actually, it was sort of like you went through the marriage ceremony, but no reception, no consummation, no living together. Okay, so you're legally married, but there was sometimes a year of this betrothal process before the marriage would actually be celebrated and consummated. And during that, during that betrothal, the groom would oftentimes be collecting a dowry to pay to the bride's family and, and such as is common in traditional cultures. So for a year, there's the commitment of marriage, but not the celebration and enjoyment of marriage. Okay, this is why in the gospel accounts, when, when Mary shows up pregnant with Jesus, it says Joseph, being a righteous man, desired to put her away secretly because they're already betrothed. And so all of a sudden, it's chaos. All right, there's all kinds of mess for Joseph in the birth of Jesus Christ. So in, in light of that understanding of marriage now, think about how this describes salvation. Right? You have been united with Christ. He has pledged Himself to you. You have pledged yourself to Him. But right now, you're in this long season of waiting, of betrothal, before there will be this great celebration, this great feast, this great party, where that marriage, that betrothal, really comes to fruition, and there is the true enjoyment of that relationship with God. 
exactly the nature of salvation. Uh, Here's what I think this corrects for us. Here's, I think, why John, part of why John is, is grabbing this image of a wedding feast and using it to describe for us salvation. What this shows us is, first of all, that salvation cannot be reduced to self-interest. Salvation cannot be reduced to self-interest. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean here. One of the things I do often with my kids and have done for years is to try to spend personal time with each of them. And so we go on daddy dates or I take them to Starbucks or I take them to breakfast or we do something and I just spend time with each of them individually. So a few months ago, I took my boys out to Shields at Village Point where they have a NASCAR simulator. I don't know if you've seen this, but like for boys who like to play video games, right? Imagine strapping them into a prototype race car and the whole thing is like turning. And I mean, it's, it's very exciting for boys who like to play video games, right? And so I took them out there, paid the money. They drove in this NASCAR simulator. It was a lot of fun. They really enjoyed it. So a couple weeks later, my son says to me, hey, daddy, I was just wondering if you want to spend some time together tomorrow. And I was like, well, sure, of course I'd, that'd be great. What do you, what do you want to do? And he says, well, you know, I thought we could maybe, um, I don't know, go get something to eat and then go drive the NASCAR simulator. And I just realized, oh, so so actually what this is about is you want to drive the NASCAR simulator, right? This is not, I want to spend time with my dad. This is, I want to get in the NASCAR simulator. And this opportunity of spending time with my dad gets me that right now. Kids are like that, and we sort of expect that and understand that, and it's sort of cute and innocuous when it's done by children. But listen to me, that's exactly how some of you approach God. You don't want God. What you want are the things that God has to offer, be it salvation from hell, a more fulfilling life, psychological peace from your guilt and shame. What you want is what God has to offer, but not God. And so your understanding of salvation, your pursuit of salvation is ultimately self-interest. I want things that are good for me, but I, I don't want God. That's not salvation. You see, that's what John's telling you. That is not salvation. You're not regenerate, if that's the case. You're just religious. The reason I say that is because the Bible says, if you are truly regenerate, if the Holy Spirit has truly caused you to be born again, has given you a new heart, then the fruit of that is love for God. Romans 5, 5. Love for God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Joy, worship, obedience. I want to know God. I want to experience God. I want to commune with God. What I want most is God, and therefore, because I love and want and desire God, of course, everything that comes with that is mine as well. But I'm after the giver, not the gift. This is why Paul says, right, To live is Christ, to die is gain. What does he want most? He wants God and communion with God and fellowship with God. See, salvation is about 
a feast. It's about enjoying the host. It's about celebrating with the groom. It's about enjoying the person of God. Not just about getting the benefits that that offers. Salvation can't be reduced to self-interest. Salvation is about a desire for God. As John Piper has put it, God is the gospel. God is what you get. God is what's promised to you. John wants you to see in this picture, in this image of a meal, this is about enjoying communion and fellowship with God. That's the goal. That's what it's about. It's about a feast where you will celebrate and enjoy God and God's people. And the second thing I think John is confronting here is our tendency to reduce salvation to individualism. And what he's saying is, you can't do that. Salvation cannot be reduced to individualism. It's not a personal, private affair. It's not about me and Jesus. It's about me and the people of God. Right? God is throwing a party, and whoever God invites is who gets to come. And some of those people... You might, you might not invite over if you were throwing a party, but that's okay, because it's God's party. See, salvation is not about some individualistic, personal experience between me and God. It is about me being counted into the people of God, invited to the wedding feast of God, enjoying the hospitality and the community that comes as a part of that. Another way to say it is, God is saving for himself a people not persons. He's calling us into a family, into a community. And when you see this, when you see that salvation is about being part of a people, it changes how you think about community and it changes how you think about mission. So, he, so here's what we hear sometimes from people. right? We, we are at Quorum Day are committed to getting you into community. Right? Putting you into communities of people where there can actually be people knowing you, people speaking into your life, you exercising the gifts God's given you, you asking the questions you have and hashing out the concerns and challenges that are in your life with people. And, and what we often hear is this, well, listen, the people in my missional community, they're great people, but we're not friends. Like, I wouldn't hang out with them on the weekend. You know, they're not the kind of people... It feels odd. It feels sort of like forced community. And my response is, exactly. So does your family. Right? Listen, that's the only way your community becomes a gospel community. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you only hang out with people that you like anyway, what's distinctive about that? Even pagans do that. Every human being wants to only hang out with people that are like them. That's natural. There's nothing supernatural about that. But see, when your experience of community, when the gospel brings together a diverse crowd of people who wouldn't normally hang out, who don't necessarily share the same interests, who don't have the same life story, but what unites them is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's countercultural and counterintuitive. There's something about that where the gospel is the only thing that can create that kind of community. And that is a picture, it's a display of the gospel. Because it shows, look, what brings this odd, diverse, motley crew of people together? Jesus. Jesus. 
Understanding this idea of a meal also changes how you think about mission. In fact, you might put it this way, that the essence of mission, the essence of evangelism, is hospitality. Right, think about a meal. What, what do you do when you, when you throw a feast? Let's say you have family over at Thanksgiving, or you host a party at your house, or you have a wedding reception for someone in your family. What are you doing in that? You're creating space for people who are outsiders and strangers to feel that they are family and friends. You're gathering people into a space where there's a feeling of being at home, not being a stranger, being welcomed into a community, being welcomed around a table. Hospitality is taking someone who maybe would feel like a stranger and placing them in a context where there's no way they could feel like a stranger because they're around the table. They're sharing fellowship. See, this is exactly what mission is. It's, it's God making room at His table for those who don't yet know Him and follow Him. It's us inviting people to the table, welcoming them in to the great feast that God is providing and offering. See, this needs to tweak how you think about evangelism, because some of you guys think evangelism is dropping a gospel bomb on somebody, right? And then kind of backing up and be like, hey, deal with that! Right? That's, that's a really poor, unbiblical model of mission. Right? God's model of mission is hospital. Think about Jesus' life. How often do you read about him having a meal with prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors, strangers, outcasts, and Pharisees? Right? This is the nature of how Jesus extends his kingdom invitation is by welcoming people in. And so here at Quorum Deo, we, we often describe and declare and, and talk about the idea that, man, we love when people just are willing to be among us. Right? We want this to be a hospitable place where people just can come in at any place where they are, get the questions answered that they have, journey along with us for a while, and not feel like a stranger. That's the nature of mission. And it's driven out of this vision that John gives us that what heaven is, what the kingdom of God is, what salvation is, is a meal. It's gathering around a table. It's enjoying fellowship with one another. So, so John gives us this picture of a meal and then he turns the corner and now he gives us a vision of salvation being like war. Remember that at the beginning of Revelation, I showed you this picture of Jesus that I took in the foyer of a church in our city. And I said, something just doesn't strike me right about this picture of Jesus. Now you're going to see why. All right? I'm going to read Revelation 19. You tell me how it squares with Caucasian feathery hair Jesus. All right? <laughs> then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. The language here is great. This behold a white horse exclamation point is sort of like, I saw heaven open and oh my gosh, a white horse! It's like this climactic moment. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Tweaks your, tweaks your picture of Jesus a little bit, doesn't it? His eyes are like fire. He's leading an army. His robe has blood on it. He's got a tat on his thigh. I mean, Jesus is bringing the heat right here. And I want you to have this vision of Jesus burned in your mind. And here's why. Because our cultural concept of Jesus is a lot more like that picture. It's a lot more of this docile, gentle figure. And Jesus very much is right, tender toward the broken, inviting toward the outcast. But we need to combine the gentleness of Jesus with the fierceness and the furiousness of the picture of Jesus that we see in Revelation 19, where Jesus, in righteousness, judges and makes war. I want you to have this picture of Jesus burned in your consciousness. Because listen, if you're going to fight sin in your life, you need to fear God. And one thing that will help you fear God is Jesus on a white horse with a sword and some blood on him. Right? This picture of Jesus is here to help just tweak your thinking so that that when you're tempted to continue in habitual sin, something clicks in your mind and goes, no, no, this is the Jesus I'm sinning against. When you're tempted to drop the Lord's name in vain, that this goes, no, no, this is the Jesus I'm, I'm talking about. This is whose name I'm taking in vain. This is who I'm sinning against. What is John teaching us about salvation in this image of war? What he's reminding us is that salvation cannot be reduced to moralism. Salvation is not about God making us all into nice little boys and girls. Jesus doesn't save us to make us nice. He saves us to make us holy. And holiness requires an all-out assault on evil. And when we settle for nice instead of holy, we stop doing war against sin. Because you can be nice and have a lot of sin harbored in your heart. But Jesus is out to make us holy. Listen to Eugene Peterson. He says, We do not live in a benign or neutral world. There is malign opposition and evil will at work to deceive and destroy us. Salvation attacks an enemy. When Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil, he was arming us for a life of salvation. St. Paul Preaching salvation did not organize ethical societies around the Mediterranean basin. He fought battles and developed an extensive vocabulary to name the opposition, powers, rulers, thrones, dominions. See, salvation attacks evil. There is an enemy to be defeated. There is evil in the world to be destroyed. And in the end, Jesus is coming to set everything right, to wage war on sin and on all the evil that has corrupted and tarnished His good creation. 
And in this image of war, John is coming head on at our tendency to just reduce salvation to just being good. Just being nice. Just being moral. No, John says, salvation is war. There is a war to be fought in your own soul against indwelling sin. There is a war to be fought in your church against gossip and slander and selfishness. There is a war to be fought in your city against systems of injustice. There is a war to be fought in the world around you against evil and wickedness and anything that destroys the image of God and works against the purposes of God. And listen to me, salvation requires that you name evil. That you have a sense that there is wickedness and evil in the world. And what your culture wants you to do is just sort of flatten everything so that you know what? There's really no good in evil. Everything just kind of is, and whatever you think is good for you, and there's no ultimate, you can't say anyone's wrong about anything or anyone's right about anything, because ultimately all distinctions are flattened. But see, in this metaphor, in this picture of Jesus waging war, John says, no, 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 there is evil. Salvation is an assault on evil and on wickedness and on sin, and so salvation requires that we name evil. Listen to me. Abortion is evil. Pornography is evil. Homosexuality is evil. Adultery is evil. Greed and gossip and gluttony are evil. Salvation calls us into the battle against sin and evil. Salvation requires that we name evil. And fight it in ourselves and in the world around us. And here's the danger, even in me saying this. The danger is there's something in us that sort of has this crusading tendency that wants to strap on the sword and go kick butt against all the evil people out there. Right? But see, the war begins in your own heart. The war begins with you fighting against your own sin. The war also is not against flesh and blood. It's not against those bad people, whoever they might be. It's against Satan, demons, principalities, powers. The war requires skill in weapons that some of you have no ability to wield. Things like prayer. Ephesians 6, one of the primary Tools, implements, weapons that you have at your disposal in battle is prayer. And ultimately, the battle is fought and won by Jesus, not by us. I mean, isn't it interesting, this picture of the battle that's here in Revelation 19? You have Jesus, he's leading the heavenly armies on horses. All the forces of evil line up against him. But did you notice what's missing? There's no battle. They drop the battle lines and then the war's over. Jesus wins. There's no like conflict, fight back. There's no awesome battle scene. It's just drop the lines. The sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth annihilates all his enemies. Evil is destroyed. Beast and the false prophet are thrown in the lake of fire. End of story. Jesus wins. God wins. That's, 
That's the point. That's the message of the book of Revelation. And John wants us to see that happens. Salvation is captured in the image of a meal, a supper, a feast. And it's captured in the image of a war, a fight. Once again, Eugene Peterson says this. Salvation is the intimacies and festivities of marriage. Salvation is aggressive battle and defeat of evil. Salvation is neither of these things by itself. It is the two energies, the embrace of love and the assault on evil, in polar tension, each defined by the other, each feeding into the other. Isn't this exactly the pattern of Jesus' last day on earth? You know what Jesus did in his last day on earth? He hosted a meal. He threw a party for his disciples. He fed them and ate with them and drank with them around the table, just enjoying unhurried fellowship and community. A conversation that must have been wide-ranging because John records chapters of it in his gospel. Jesus ate a meal, and then he went to war. He went to do battle against all the forces of evil and all the forces of darkness on the cross. And he won. He triumphed. He was victorious. Salvation is a meal. Salvation is a war. It's not a war like we think of war. It doesn't use human weapons. It uses the weapons of the Spirit. It uses the weapons of humility and prayer and sacrifice. And if you read the narrative of the last day of Jesus' life, you see Him utilizing those weapons. Insults are hurled at Him. He doesn't answer back. He responds in gentleness. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He meekly and gently goes to the cross to purchase our salvation. And to win the battle. And so listen, salvation is a meal and a war. And every time that we come to the communion table, we're celebrating and remembering both. The the communion table is a meal. In fact, it is explicitly a preview of the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus said at the Last Supper with his disciples, I'm not going to drink of this again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. Do this until then in remembrance of me. And so at every church that believes the gospel, every place all over the globe this morning, bread is being broken and wine is being consumed in remembrance of Jesus. This is a meal that invites us to look forward to, to remember, to anticipate the great coming marriage supper of the Lamb, and and that keeps us pursuing, that keeps us faithful, that is designed to keep us in the fight and in the game and making progress toward that day. And this is also a war. It's a reminder that sin and evil are real. In fact, they're so real that they required the shedding of the blood of the sinless Son of God on the cross. That's how real evil and wickedness are. And so as you eat this bread and drink this wine, you are remembering, you are celebrating Jesus' victory on the cross 
through his blood, through his death. And so we often say that communion is for repentant Christians. Not perfect Christians, because none of us are that. Repentant Christians. Meaning, uh, you are welcome at this table if you want to commune with God. If your heart desires God. And if you're willing to do battle against sin. If you're willing to look to the battle that he did on the cross and allow that to be instrumental and instructive for your own battle against the sin and wickedness in your life. Then this is for you. If you're trusting in Jesus, if you want to commune with God, and if you are willing to do battle against sin. Now, it's not for I'm doing as good a battle as I possibly could be. Right? There's all kinds of things that will surface in your mind of, well, am I doing battle well enough? Am I trusting in Jesus deeply enough? None of that matters. Here's what matters. Are you trusting in Him? Do you want to commune with God? And are you committed to fighting sin? If that describes you, then this table is for you. And I want to invite you to it in just a moment. If that doesn't describe you yet, then Jesus' hospitality that is offered here is extended to you. God wants you to see, listen, the feast that will be thrown in heaven is wide open to whoever will repent and trust and desire communion with God and be willing to do battle against sin primarily by humbling themselves and bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus. And so that's the invitation that exists to you this morning. If you're not yet a repentant Christian, what you should see in this table is God's invitation to you. This is God God throwing open the feast and saying, listen, in heaven... At the end of time, there's going to be a great feast, a great marriage supper to which you are invited. And right now, this is your guarantee that that will happen and that you're invited. Let's pray and then partake together. God, I confess that if we were to write the Bible, we probably wouldn't write it the way you did. Because in our minds and hearts, there is tension between the idea of meal and hospitality and the ideas of war and wrath and judgment. And yet we see the beautiful paradox of the gospel that you have invited and beckoned and welcomed us to yourself. And that what it cost you to do that was your very own blood given for us in battle and war against sin and evil. And so thank you, Jesus, that you have won and that you share your victory with your people. Would you make us a people who long for you, not just for what you give and provide and offer, but for you? Would you make us a people who are committed to community and to loving one another and to extending the hospitality that you show to those around us? Would you make us a people who are willing to do battle against sin, who long for justice to be done, for sin and evil to be vanquished, and who want to see the beginnings of that today starting in our own hearts. Conform us to you, Lord Jesus, for your glory. Amen.